Section 17 of Sir Francis Drake by Julian Corbett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. In Quest of the Spanish Armada, Part 1. Still burning for action, on June 26th, Drake reached Plymouth with his splendid prize, and after a fortnight was spent in getting her up to Saltash and overhauling the priceless cargo, with a chest full of jewels and the bill of lading, he hurried to court, hoping to dazzle the queen into giving him the orders he so ardently desired. But all was in vain. Not all Drake's temptation, nor all that Burley and Walsingham could urge, availed to stir the obstinate mood into which Mary Stuart's execution had plunged her. She would attend to nothing but the funeral. Burley and all the war party were still in disgrace for having stolen the serpent from her bosom, and she stubbornly shut her ear to all who did not speak of peace. Drake's exploits promised to wreck the whole negotiations, and he was pitilessly reprimanded. So far from being allowed to assist him, Burley was set to write dispatches assuring Parma that the admiral had exceeded his instructions and was in disgrace. Orders were sent down to pay off his ships, and the hunger which his small beginning, as he called it, had only whetted, had to go unappeased. Still he might have been content, for the actual havoc he had made was but a little thing, beside its moral effect. Not only had he taught English seamen to despise the dreaded galleys, but in the rank and file of Philip's host he had planted a terror against which it was vain to struggle that a lutheran heretic could so prevail against the army of god could admit as men thought then of but one explanation and that the church made haste to foster drake was a magician he had sold his soul to satan for a familiar by whose aid he worked in his cabin was a glass in which was shown him the fleets of his enemies and all that passed on board he could count their crews and watch their movements and like the norse witches of old by some dark bargain he had bought the power to garner the winds and loose or bind them at his will let no one underrate what all this meant he cannot read or write the history of that time who fails to grasp how such a personality could oppress the imagination sorcery was then as real as sin and men moved and breathed and thought in an atmosphere charged with magic nor was this all if the superstitious fishermen that manned philip's ships shuddered before a new devil the romantic chivalry of castile had found another roland for the crews to fight was madness for the captains surrender was no shame to the king his name was a torment the grandees looked cold disdain when it was uttered the pope mocked at him and said Elizabeth's distaff was keener than Philip's sword. He invited a lady to go upon the water, and she protested she dare not for fear the dragon should come and take her from her sovereign's arms. Philip banished her from the court, and smarting under the scourge redoubled his activity, but still he had to feel what foreign critics were saying openly, that in England was a man before whom his armada might be not invincible, and his crusade a disgrace. Yet he relaxed no fibre, nor did Drake. Forbidden to strike Philip abroad, 
he turned his animosity against the traitor he saw at home though the government refused to carry out the sentence of death borough was brought before a court-martial charge upon charge drake heaped implacably on his head and confounded him with crowds of witnesses too eager to win the great admiral's favour yet to his indignation and astonishment the court refused to convict the prisoner of treason more they could not do it was impossible for them not to find that the veteran who seventeen years ago had so brilliantly defeated the baltic pirates had lost his nerve and so with clouded reputation in administrative employ and once in command of a dispatch vessel he fades from history moaning hopelessly over the charges which had broken his heart but to crush the man who as he believed had ruined his enterprise was not enough for drake's energy for twenty years he had never ceased a day to do and dare against spain and he was not likely to be still at such an hour as this if the queen would not make war he was determined to do it on his own account as he looked round him for the best method of pursuing his lifelong quest his eyes could not but turn on the abortive project of five years ago it had been in his mind for some time as he lay off lisbon in may he had ascertained that the portuguese were expecting him to land with don antonio and his company and for the rest of the time he was on the coast he had been carefully preparing his ground by conciliating them in every way he could don antonio over head and ears in debt was still hanging about the capital ready for anything that would release him from the clutches of his creditors black john norris drake's old brother-in-arms was there too out of employ and in disgrace for presuming to try and save the english arms in the low countries from leicester's incompetence the capture of the great carrack had set the merchants mouths watering for the indian fleet and everything seemed ripe for a repetition of the great king-making project the only difficulty was the queen but drake had every ground for a comfortable faith in her love of tortuous political moves he knew too at what value to set her reprimands and moreover he had at court a new friend more powerful and eager than hatton himself the young earl of essex the son of his old patron was just now in the first flush of his favour and his passion for adventure he had just been caught in an attempt to escape to the seat of war in the low countries and brought back to play games with his fond and lonely mistress smelling traitors now with every breath drake pursued his intrigue in such deep mystery that only here and there his workings show on the surface still there can be no doubt that he suggested to the forlorn young truant a new way of escape the coaxing of her favourite and the temptations of her little pirate were always hard for the queen to resist and as she found her apologies to spain accepted and the negotiations for peace going smoothly once more opposition in high quarters seemed to disappear don antonio received a thousand pounds to pay his more pressing debts ships began to collect at plymouth the carrack was ordered to be sold that the merchants interested might refit their vessels and by the end of october drake had formed a syndicate to provide the fifty thousand pounds which were required of him as a privateer by way of caution money everything promised well for his new war under don antonio's flag when all at once 
elizabeth was confronted with the fruit of her folly in not having permitted drake to return at once and complete his work walsingham's brilliant financial operations by which he had got the king of spain's bills protested at genoa were in vain for the safe arrival of the great convoys had restored spanish credit and stung at last from his patience philip found himself rich enough to indulge in an outburst of energy that surprised both friends and foes regardless of the season the armada was to sail ere the year was out and england after years of warning was taken by surprise once more the country was tossing in a fever of warlike preparation the navy was to be put on its war footing and drake was summoned to headquarters to take counsel for the safety of the realm in endeavouring to appreciate the strategy of this time for which drake and sir john norris must be held responsible as respectively the naval and military chiefs of the staff it must be remembered that england was threatened by three separate invasions at the same moment in spain was the armada in flanders was parma with an army of thirty thousand of the finest soldiers in europe with adequate transport and a small fleet to convoy them while the border was in peril from the scots any two of these dangers or even all three might combine but the best intelligence led to the belief that parma meant to join the scots while the armada seized ireland or the isle of wight as a base of operations against the west or south in view of this information and the fact that the queen still obstinately clinging to her hope of peace would only openly sanction a defensive war there is little fault to be found with the english naval dispositions a fleet under lord henry seymour with sir william winter and sir henry palmer as flag officers was to watch parma in the narrow seas and to act in concert with the dutch who were blockading the spanish netherland ports to command-in-chief lord howard of effington was commissioned lord high admiral with authority to invade the spanish dominions for this purpose he was to be in command of the main fleet with john hawkins and martin frobisher for his flag officers for drake was reserved the high rank of lieutenant to the lord high admiral an office which seemed designed to give him as full a control over the war at sea as the lingering feudality of the constitution would allow to a commoner however great his professional capacity by virtue of the office he became president of the naval council of war and as the lord admiral's deputy could exercise all the powers of that officer's commission at the head of an independent command with this in view his little fleet of privateers was reinforced from the thames and portsmouth dockyards with four battleships a cruiser and a couple of smart gunboats his division was thus raised to thirty sail and the plan of action seems to have been that while howard guarded the channel drake was to inflict a counter-blow somewhere it was given out that he was once more bound for the spanish main and volunteers flocked to his flag his real destination was kept a profound secret but we cannot doubt what it was for at christmas time a spy was reporting to burleigh that don antonio might easily be restored to his throne and in january the instructions of the commissioners who were going over to flanders to treat for an armistice were modified so as to forbid portugal or don antonio being included in the negotiations in the light of this extraordinary piece of statecraft 
elizabeth appears hardly so single-hearted in her struggle to keep the peace as some have thought her but she was at least consistent her darling policy had been all along to do her brother-in-law grievous bodily harm without committing a breach of the peace and drake had ever been the weapon that most nicely fitted her hand she could not believe that philip's patience was at last exhausted and under don antonio's flag she thought like celia in the play to make herself invisible and catch the strong fellow by the leg such was drake's mission as on january third he went down to plymouth to hoist his flag it was fitly borne by the immortal revenge than which no ship was ever more gilded with the romance of war his old friend thomas fenner was his vice-admiral in the known pareo his rear-admiral was captain cross in the hope edward fenner commanded the swiftsure his fourth battleship and will fenner's flag flew over his cruiser the aid beside the royal ships rode five splendid merchantmen of london perfectly found as the londoners always were the west were west country craft belonging to himself and his own and his wife's relations and friends all outward-bound vessels had been stayed and drake could pick his crews from the flower of the english marine who flocked to his flag in numbers it was said sufficient to man two hundred sail true half-crews only had been sanctioned but to this foolish piece of economy drake paid no attention regardless of all but his end he manned his fleet with its full complement and when the time came sent in the bill without a word while drake was thus busy with his expeditionary force howard covered plymouth and watched for the armada off the land's end but he watched in vain the seas were still free the winter campaign seemed a false alarm and howard about the middle of january was recalled to the thames where in spite of his protests half his crews were paid off early in february came a new alarm and howard was once more ordered to man his ships and put to sea but while the lord admiral and seymour were thus distracted with orders that changed with every new report from spain and every new turn of the negotiations drake except when he practised too hard with his big guns was not meddled with men said he would still sail and philip trembling for his reconstructed fleet left no stone unturned to get him stopped crofts his pensioner in the english council even went so far as to tempt the queen's cupidity with a scheme for his disgrace and the confiscation of his wealth essex too was made to suspect that the admiral meant to play him false and treat him as he had treated sidney and as his preparations approached completion drake grew more and more anxious nor was it without cause for ere the month was out crofts had prevailed the commissioners for peace went over to ostend and the plymouth fleet was stopped End of section seventeen